1: Josh Bob nerds. We are back. And if we're back, that means that off season is almost over. And yes, for some of us working folks, not named Josh Pate, there is a thing called an off season, unfortunately, but fortunately, Josh, we're here. That's right. Josh is here getting nerdy with me and we are going to talk all things NIL. You have read, I'm sure. Cause all y'all who follow us here are following us on Twitter We've got some things to say about NIL, and we haven't really done a video about it, so it's time to talk NIL. We're probably gonna make a few of y'all mad, and a few of y'all not so mad. But uh, if you want to hear this full discussion, because this is really tonight we're recording, and Josh and I are just kind of freewheeling it, discussing about some topics that we have kind of talked on Twitter, but not so much on YouTube. So there's gonna be like a long version of this in the podcast form, like one long take, couple of hours. But we're gonna chop these up for YouTube. So if you're seeing this and you want to hear the long one. Check out our podcast, link is in the description. All right, Josh, um, I want to start with, you know, NIL, everybody kind of knows what they think it is. Um, And, you know, when we first saw this coming, we posted a video, I think three or four years ago, where you said we need a collective. And the whole discussion was around collective bargaining and having like a pool that distributes the money. We didn't get that for a bunch of reasons. Um, and, and I know you're going to want to go into all lawyer lawyer mode and talk about a lot of the state laws and things like that. But in general, let's start with a clean foundation of what is NIL supposed to be? And then we're going to talk about how everybody screwed it up. NIL
2: in its true form is name, image, likeness, rights. And what that really refers to is this idea that you own the right to your own name. Uh, you own the right to uh, use your name in an advertisement, or you know, if you want to say that you support a product, that's your right to give. Um, someone else can't use that. If they start saying that, let's say um, Joe Schmidt down the road uh, wants to say that you support their dry ice shack. You know, Fred thinks this is the greatest dry ice shack on the planet. Well, if they do that and you didn't agree with it, in fact, you hate him, what's your cause of action? You know, like, how do you sue them? Well, if you aren't a famous person, you don't really have a ton of recourse in a lot of ways because you don't really have any popularity. But the the uh, cause of action you actually have is your name, image, and likeness rights. If someone is bringing this stuff up and you are Michael Jordan, and they say, Michael Jordan comes here all the time, this is Michael Jordan's favorite 7-Eleven Michael Jordan can sue you and say, look, you don't have the right to use my name. My name is my name, and I have the right to use it. I have to give you permission to use my name, and then you may have to pay a fee for that endorsement. And so we have this sort of, what is really an intellectual property right to your name, and it's kind of a unique thing. So if you understand what that is, then you also understand sort of what it isn't. Um, A name, image, likeness, right doesn't mean that anyone can pay you for any reason name image and likeness doesn't mean that if someone hires you to go paint a shed that it's your name image and likeness that they're paying for what they're paying you to do is to paint the shed where it becomes name image and likeness is if they're paying you to make an appearance at a shed painting for their corporation and you come up there and you sort of twiddle the brush for a second smile for a camera Um, they take a picture you've gotten an appearance fee Okay. And, and I'll, one of the probably most famous examples in the legal space, uh, there was an actor on Cheers and there was a bar at an airport. And the bar at the airport had what looked like sort of the Cheers set up and they had little characters they'd set up on certain stools to make it look like Cheers. And one of them looked like the actor. And he successfully sued and said, hey, you can't do that. This looks like me. I didn't authorize this. Even if you're not ripping off cheers per se or you're not close enough i got the right to my own image and likeness you can't just make a statue of me and sell it whenever you want to or whatever you want to like i get the right to uh, any money off my name again name on the back of a jersey i get the right to a statue of my honor etc um where this becomes a problem is when you know using that appearance fee concept right like people pay you to come show up turn smile paint a take a picture paint the brush they are needing to pay you for your endorsement for your appearance for the value of your appearance and where nil has gotten really screwed up is if i'm paying you to show up to my house and paint the side of my house and no one is there to see it what am i paying for because at that point you're not paying for that person's endorsement you're not paying for their appearance because no one sees that, they don't, there's no market value to their appearance in that situation. Nobody knows it happened. You're just paying them as a pretext for their appearance, or rather, their appearance is a pretext for paying them. And that's where NIL has gotten a lot off the rails. Is we have payments for things where it might be fifty thousand dollars a year to receive some sort of endorsement, or maybe you show up on their Twitter. But the fair market value of what's being paid the amount of money is way out of whack with the value of their name, right? I, you know, the fact that some second string offensive linemen at Texas, and I think right now all the Texas offensive linemen are supposed to be getting about $50,000 a year. I believe that's a public statement they put out. If they're getting $50,000 a year and you've never heard of who they are before, is that actually fair market? Is, are they actually getting $50,000 in benefit? And if the answer is no, then you really aren't paying them for their name. You're paying them for something else. And you're getting benefit of the name and the something else that's the rub and that's what's creating the problem.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, we saw this with Texas AM. and I know AM fans are really upset with us right now. Um, and, and look, there's numbers. We don't know what the exact number is for any of these schools. Um, there's things that they report, but Josh, there's also stuff that's like really wink, wink, come here and we're going to pay you. They don't even have that Twitter deal or that car, you know, dealership commercial deal in place and they're not announcing them. They're not posting them, you know, every single deal everywhere. So this is basically just facilitating paying people under the table. And this is one of the things that really frustrates me. And we're gonna get into some a lot of things that frustrate me, but this is one that really bothers me because I don't think it's being intellectually honest when people say, Well, you know, this is just making you know, above the table, what was already going on under the table. And, and they, and, and people say this without arguing for, you know, when you, when Josh, you say, you know, Addison went to USC and for $3 million was a reported deal, which we don't know what the number was. People say, well, you know, he's now just getting paid what he would have gotten paid under the table. That's so far beyond the numbers that were going on under the table and the thing about the under-the-table money before is, Josh, is that if everybody's cheating, nobody's got a competitive advantage. But if A&M, let's say it was half of what was reported, or let's say it was like $20 million, the number of schools that could pay $20 million for a class is very small in college football. Which leads me to an, an observation, Josh, that I've had that I want you to opine a bit as you are known to do. Um, Isn't it weird, because we're talking about Addison, we're talking about the kids that went to Alabama this year, you know, they just leveled up all their weak spots on mid-tier teams' backs. With the addition of free transfers, which really makes pay-to-play, you know, puts it into overdrive with NIL. You pair NIL with free transfers. Um, Isn't it weird that the same people who are arguing for expanded playoffs under the guise of increased parity. They're always talking about helping the little guy. These are the same people who are pushing for and celebrating unrestricted free agency and NIL in college football. There are a lot of narratives
2: that people have that all get mixed up here. Uh, one of the most common ones is, well, we're just paying the players what they're worth. Okay, well, if we're paying the players for their worth, are we playing, paying them what they're worth for their name? Are we paying them what they're worth for the football team and the output they create and the ticket sales? Because those are two very different things. NIL is just about their name. It's just about their endorsement value. What you actually mean is we're paying them what they're worth for their benefit to your football team and the quality they bring to your football team. And if that's the road we're going down, there aren't that many programs that can compete because the value of a player to Ohio State is not the value of a player, to Indiana. It, it doesn't matter if he's the same quality guy. It doesn't matter how much he elevates the program. If you take someone like Phoenix Jr., he goes to Indiana, he has a lot of success. Is he a superstar there? Sure. If he had that same level of success at Ohio State, he would be 10 times the celebrity. So for the players, there's this incentive to go to the biggest schools, and for the biggest schools, they have this pot of money that they can push to the players, and that breaks Parity. And, and I've, it sort of warps our minds sometimes on Twitter or other places. People try to make this argument that this whole system is going to end up promoting parody at the end of the day, because now everybody can get paid. And so, um, you know, the money's going to get spread around and, uh, and, you know, some places aren't going to have the money to pay guys, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, first... You know, this idea that the big schools were paying and the little schools weren't, I don't buy that because the examples of schools that were cheating and the advantages they got were way too extreme. Hugh Freeze at Ole Miss suddenly made them a superpower when they signed Camdicci and Treadwell and all those guys. And then they got caught red-handed cheating. And, you know, if everybody was paying the same amount of money, I don't think all the five stars would have gone to Ole Miss. The fact that they all went to Ole Miss... The fact that Kim Jichi went there, as I recall, without ever having visited the school, tells me other schools weren't paying the kind of money that Ole Miss was paying. That's just the reality of it. But if you let them pay what Ole Miss is paying, Alabama and their pocketbook, I mean, it's probably 10 times what Ole Miss has. In terms of booster money, ability to fundle funds to players, they can play a game that Ole Miss can't touch. And Texas A&M and Texas, they can play a game that Alabama Can't touch. And so when you talk about tiers and parity, man, Texas can put a hundred times, and I mean literally a hundred times the cash on the table that Ole Miss could put down. And when you combine that with the transfer uh, portal, what that means is that Texas can look at Ole Miss' roster. And any player that Ole Miss has, you know, any Matt Corral uh, or or Ely or whatever that becomes a really good player at Ole Miss. They can just buy them out from under Ole Miss's fingers. And even if Ole Miss can grab recruits at the onset, if you want to play the game of the money gets spread around, some guys get developed, some guys don't, maybe some five stars go places where they weren't going before, you still end up with the ultimate issue of Texas doesn't really need to recruit anymore. You know, if you're Texas, if you're Alabama, if you're USC, if you're Ohio State, and this is the game that you want to make legal – I don't know why you really recruit. You want to take transfers as sophomores and juniors from guys that were freshmen or soft, freshman All-American guys, sophomores on All-American lists, and you're just going to poach them from those smaller schools because whatever, again, whatever Georgia Tech is willing to pay a starter, we know whatever money that Jameer Gibbs was would have gotten as a running back at Georgia Tech, even being the superstar on that team, I guarantee you he's going to make a fortune more at Alabama. And that is just going to totally destroy whatever little semblance of parody was left in college football and turn it into a sport where the best schools have literally all the best players and the second tier schools. And I don't mean G fives. I mean the old misses, the Georgia techs, the players they have that make them have occasional good teams are all going to be gone. And they essentially get turned into G fives too. And, and I, it's really the TCUs, the Georgia techs, the old misses of the world that I'm really concerned about from a competitiveness perspective.
1: Yeah. And what, what's what you kind of touched on and what really concerns me is what you just said before about teams, these mid level teams every once in a while jumping up and, and being good. Like we see this with like a Cincinnati where they, they're, they're artificially senior laden and they've got a lot of experience And they have that one good team and maybe it's cyclical. Maybe they roll off and then they build that up four or five years later and they're good again. That hope is out the window because they're never going to be able to get that inertia. And if they do find a diamond in the rough who's a three-star or two-star kid and they develop him, and Alabama's going to go out and get him. The flip side of that that's really troubling to me is, let's use Alabama as an example. This year is a perfect example. Think about, Josh, the, the early, the aughts when Alabama was good in 08, great in 09, fell down in 2010, got good again. Like They would have these peaks and valleys, and the valleys were low, but it was because they were weak in a specific position unit. So they might have recruited poorly at defensive line or linebacker a couple of years in a row or offensive line or whatever it was, and at some point that really rears its head on the field because they just don't have the bodies – That's commensurate with the other talent around them. And that weak spot can be exploited. You know, now with NIL and free transfer, Alabama's never going to have these valleys. This ensures that they're always at a peak because look at this year. This year they had some maybe misses at wide receiver. And they had ridiculous attrition at wide receiver the last three years with guys going to the NFL. So at some point, their wide receiver room was going to fall back to earth cuz you don't have hits every recruiting cycle. Well, what did they do instead of having a year where they really don't have great wide receivers, they go out and get a five-star from Georgia. They go out and get maybe the best I think a top going to be a top 3 wide receiver in the country from Louisville. Louisville, that's, that's that's their best player. That's who they got. And now he's gone and they're just ba- basically a feeder league to Alabama. Same thing with running back. They go out and grab the maybe the best running back in the country, you know, top five from Georgia Tech, instead of, you know, having maybe a little bit of a weaker running back room, they're always going to be good. And that's a huge concern to me. Um, and, and I think this kind of bleeds into our next discussion. I want to make sure you've gotten everything you wanted to say about this before we talk about the next topic. Yeah,
2: I think ultimately the thing to keep in mind is it's really the transfer portal that makes all this really bad. And right now we're all looking at where college football is. And people talk about NIL. People talk about how NIL hasn't clearly broken college football yet, but this is the thing I'm going to end on. We haven't seen a season played yet with NIL recruits. NIL was enacted last summer. The first class to be signed based off NIL was the class that was signed this past February. So recruiting hasn't even started and you're not going to feel that impact for another two to three years when those guys are more like juniors but we felt it a little bit last year with Jamison Williams and some other guys that transferred over the summer, I think, but I think this next year when you're going to see what Texas A&M is going to be able to put on the field, at defensive line over the next three years due to the class that according to Jimbo Fisher, they did not buy. Um, even though, you know, all those five stars, I think four of the five, the four, of, it was like four of the top five defensive linemen, all of which were out of state. They were from Tennessee, Georgia, Florida. Yeah, it's, it's a little fishy. Um, you're going to see that grow up, and you're going to realize how big this problem is. So, this problem has only just gotten Yeah, got and if they have
1: misses, they'll just go and grab one from Tennessee or Florida.
2: Right. <laughs> Al- Alabama should not be the number one no. team this year from no. a normal perspective. With the offensive line being where they were last year, with the losses at wide receiver, their injuries at running back, they should have multiple major holes on that roster, and they don't, and it's because of NIL. So,
1: all y'all who won NIL and free transfers, free agency in college football. You just made Alabama better than they would have been, which is that talk about an embarrassment of riches. I forgot. They also got a offensive line transfer. Like this is, this is wild anyway. Um, so that's a, a decent segue into some of the more recent news. Cause NIL has been a discussion for a while. We just haven't had a chance to talk about it. Um Josh, Super conferences, it's, you know, I was talking to Josh Pate the other day and he was talking about how um, the dead period, it seems like every year something falls like manna from heaven and just gives him content to talk about. And last year it was Oklahoma and Texas coming to the SEC. This year it's all this discussion about super conferences. And, you know, universally I think most college football fans are – groaning about this because they see the writing on the wall and they see this becoming more of a NFL model and maybe paring down the teams that are in quote unquote D one football. And again, I want to say a lot of people that are groaning about this have to realize that NIL free transfers, the threat of college football playoff expansion created this monster and I'm going to let you talk about why.
2: It comes back to what we were discussing when we talked about NIL in general. I mean, the, the simple answer here is that NIL, when we talk about NIL, we don't really mean name, image, likeness, rights. What we mean is a world at which they can pay athletes for, um, you know, basically for attending their school and they call it NIL as a quote unquote legal reason to pay them. That means that if you were a big school, you can pull players that no one else can pull. And what it also means is you start to move closer to this idea of like a feeder system. The biggest name players now, they're going to have their own independent endorsement deals. They're going to be major celebrities. You can bring them on shows. They can have their be on the cover of, you know, people realize, right? You can be on the cover in NCAA football and be an actual college athlete now. And those guys are all going to be concentrated in the major conferences. And the major conferences are going to be poaching the best players from other conferences that don't make as much money because they don't have as much TV exposure. And so you have this sort of building thing. And, you know, I, I, there was a point that, you know, Daniel and I have bounced around a lot, uh, especially on Twitter, and I, I think this is maybe a good point to bring it up. I mean, when you talk about NIL and one of its effects, one of the biggest things it does is it breaks any semblance of regulation in the system for how you can keep um, keep competitive advantages bec- from becoming too big. You have to remember, college football is entertainment. It has no entitlement to exist. It has no entitlement for people to enjoy watching it. And the only reason it's successful is people do enjoy watching the sport. So, in that realm, you need some level of competitiveness for it to operate. If it, and you need it to feel like your team is invested but they have a chance to lose. And when you play a game, it matters. And so if you're a school like USC and you want to play games that matter and you want people to support you, USC needs to be in a conference that matters. And USC needs to be competing against teams that have an ability to beat them. And if you're another team in that big conference, you want to get it in that boat too. And one of the things that I think actually scares the big conferences along this realm is because of the lack of control right now it's possible for themselves to sort of run away from things to in such an extent that you know they can't really um, they can't really maintain the engagement they want to make if, if they're so dominant that the game has become boring it becomes a problem. Uh, if you want to draw the pro sports analog okay in pro sports you have a draft you have salary caps and all these things are designed to make sure the league stays competitive. And in our NIL scheme that we have now, it's like if Robert Kraft at the New England Patriots could go down to Florida and they could say, all right, Brady, I don't have any salary cap to pay you an actual salary, but what I can do is give you an endorsement for my company, and that endorsement's going to be $100 million a year. So come to me and I'll pay you $2 million a year in salary and $100 million in endorsements. Um, Obviously, the NFL is not going to let that fly. But that is exactly what's happening in college football. So the biggest thing that's pushing these super conferences, it's not only TV money, but it's the, the desire for all the schools to be banded together to maintain competitiveness with the other schools that are good enough to be competitive so that they can stay relevant from a TV perspective. And I will tell you the next step of where it's going is that those conferences and schools want to be have all the power in one place so they can self-regulate enough to keep things moderately competitive and interesting to keep the sport going.
1: And the thing I don't love about this, Josh is look, I I am, I am not so naive to think that this college athletics and especially college football was just about, you know, the purity of of amateurism and the student athlete. Like I get it. Like that was not, we, we, we left that a long time ago, but there was this veneer of amateurism. And, you know, when you hear people talk about the, the golden age of modern college football, it was the time leading up to the end of the BCS. And for all the complaints of like the NCAA, um, you know, enforcing things back then and putting people on probation, like when the NCAA had teeth and there was no college football playoff, Everybody loved college football a lot more than they do now. Everybody loved the postseason and the bowl games and people weren't sitting out a lot more than they do now. And to me, as we move and you think about it, it's not just the super conferences. I don't know if any of y'all been to a game in the last couple of years, but the NFLification of Saturday, the monetization of every step you make on campus from you know, pushing out paid parking all the way, miles and miles off campus, to, you know, you can't just set up a tailgate anymore, you gotta pay through the university if you wanna get any square footage anywhere remotely interesting on campus, um, to the ridiculous facilities. Like, to me, it's moved so far away from amateurism, and the super conference thing is a acknowledgement of that and who suffers the most schools that in the future won't have these paycheck games to be able to field a team, which means at the end of the day, when we're left with like 60 D1 football teams, tens of thousands of young men who would have otherwise been going to college because they were good enough at football but not good enough academically are not going to get to go to college because we are literally propping up the system To push everything towards the the teams that were and the players that were already elite, that are already rich, and that were already going to go to NFL, and that's what concerns me the most is is that this used to be an an academic, athletic scholarship vessel, and now it's become the NFL. Yeah,
2: any sense of egalitarian benefit from the system is is more or less gone. Um, You you have to realize the people that are going to make notable money from this in the major sports. Are the people that are probably going to the NFL anyway? And yeah, there are, are probably some examples. I don't, I With well, the most recent would probably be like Dylan Moses at Alabama that tore up his knee. Doesn't I forget if he went undrafted or seventh round, but he wasn't really anything like the player he was thought he was going to be. Um, yeah. 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 That's another one. Guys like that. Yeah. There's some, there's some examples of people will help, but the people it's going to hurt the most are the people at the G fives and, and there's probably going to be some programs that fold under this environment. Um, I would have to think some programs at least step down to FCS if they don't fold entirely. And for those couple guys that you help that had a chance to be a millionaire and now they merely have a college education and the $2 million in insurance policy, you have hundreds of kids that aren't going to get a scholarship at all. And I, I don't know that that's a good trade-off. And there's one more thing I think we should touch on. Or at least one more thing we should touch on before we move on, and that is, I think the financial realities of the system and how that forced the moves. I don't blame USC and UCLA for leaving the Pac-12. I, I know there's a lot of anger from Pac-12 fans, but the reality for USC and UCLA is they were in a conference that wasn't willing to spend the money we're talking about spending to compete and was not able to do so. I mean, on a sc-
1: and you're not even talking, Josh. You're not even talking about NNL because we you've you've been on this for a while, and I wanted to. I want to make clear to everybody who hasn't maybe followed us on Twitter, you're not just talking about backing up the Brinks truck and paying $50 million to steal a class. You're talking about just basic stuff.
2: Yeah, so uh, this is a topic I've been on for a long time. There <laughs> there are a lot of those Pac-12 schools that don't have dedicated football facilities. You know, they certainly don't have all have indoor football facilities and all that kind of thing. And that starts to eat at recruiting. Um, when they don't, you know, you can go walk into – most any Big Ten or SEC school, and you're going to find they have a dedicated weight room, a dedicated football facility, dedicated practice facilities, and you go to a Pac-12 school and they got a crappy share gym for the whole athletic department, and it ain't, ain't going to fly. Uh, and, and so you end up losing out on recruits. Um, and what's happened over time is one, NIL, I think they saw the writing on the all, wall that NIL was a whole other, whole other level of having to pay in that they weren't going to match. And because they aren't paying up, and I mean on a school-by-school basis, they are not investing in their programs the way they have, fan interest is really died. And because fan interest has died across the board, the TV contracts and the revenue generated by these schools is garbage. And USC may have a lot of support, but their TV revenue, I, the TV revenue gap between them and the average Big Ten school was expected to be $50 million a year. And their athletic department budget is somewhere around, I think, $140 million. And to talk, give you a concrete example of how messed up the priorities were, at least in my opinion, Stanford has a $7.5 billion budget. Billion with a B. $7,500 million. They were going to run a $12 million deficit in the athletic department, so they cut 11 sports. And they certainly aren't investing in the football program with that kind of a monetary, uh, perspective. So you've got a, you've got schools with, again, literally the the kind of numbers we're talking here are orders of magnitude, right? 10 times the endowment, 10 times the budget of an sec school. And they will not pay a fifth of what the sec school does for these sort of athletic programs. And it's because of the academic focus of the administrators. It's because their lack of knowledge of how this works. And it created such a bad environment that the only way a USC could compete and the is to generate more money. And the only way they can generate more money is going to a conference that's going to be interesting enough for people to actually watch their games
1: because they care. So Josh, last thing on this, I'm just going to ask you what you think. Do you think USC spent all this money um, and did all this stuff for Lincoln, Lincoln Riley? And, and I imagine they had to spend a lot of NIL, NIL money to get the players they got with that package deal. Do you think they did all of that with a nod to already knowing that this stuff was going to happen? And this was kind of their precursor to sort of set them up to fold into the spending money sort of inertia that they needed to get into the super conference mode.
2: I think there's no way you can look at this situation and, and think that this wasn't already on their mind. I mean, as of the what February this had to have been largely on the table and You know, I do think, you know, from like an NIL perspective, I think USC in particular, but also UCLA in that LA market, I think their attitudes and perspectives really changed because those schools realized in an NIL world where they are at the heart of media in the world, we can bring some money to the table to get recruits and to rebuild our program that no one else can. And we're, for a while, those schools were absolutely wandering in the desert. And they didn't have much of an incentive to leave because they knew they weren't going to be competitive. And frankly, the Big Ten probably would not have taken UCLA. And they might not have taken USC five years ago. In this new NAO world, they bring so many more resources to that aspect of things that they realize they could compete and they realize they were attractive enough. And I think that's when they go after Lincoln Riley because they they, they see a path to being good again and then they look at the Big Ten, and I think all this is tied together to them realizing there's a new reality where they. And I, I, I want to, you know, maybe this is the last thing to note is there are several schools like that. I think USC's one. I think Tennessee is an obvious, obvious one. Um, you know, you got the owner of the Cleveland Browns; it's a huge supporter. He's a multi-billionaire. Miami has billion, multi-billionaire boosters that are dumping money in the program. Several programs like this that are going to become players that have not been for several years, Oklahoma state, Yep, Oklahoma state, potentially, I think you could maybe even a school like Nebraska, just because of how rabid their, their donor base is. um, They're going to move up. And at the same time, there's a lot of other schools. I mentioned Ole Miss is a, because it's a particularly good example. Um, Mississippi state and Ole Miss are good schools. They have very, very uh, loyal fans. I'm not ragging the program, but from a money support perspective, the media market they're in, they can't really compete with like Tennessee and Miami strangely enough and so you're going to see some schools step way 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 up particularly like Tennessee is a historic powerhouse Miami was a historic powerhouse at one point USC was they're going to step back up to the top and then schools that have kind of risen up TCU is another one TCU is just doomed in this whole environment a lot of other school for every school that steps up to Sorry or, Parker yeah <laughs> for every school that steps up like that you're going to see two or three fall down I think it's a very important part that people haven't really talked about enough.
1: Well, and I want to lean into it a little bit in this next kind of segment and and y'all let us know. um, This is the third video. I think we're going to do in this segment. If you like this kind of freewheeling discussion that gets chopped up and put into other videos, because it's not a live show. We do that some with live shows, but this is just a kind of a different format for us. Um, Kind of the dark future of college football. And, And I think that like we're at a pivot point where we're, we're doing a little minority report thing where we're, we're pre-cogging this and this could go this direction, but it doesn't have to go this direction. But I want to outline for, for all the people that are, that are so much for player mobility and this notion of players rights where they were exploited before. And we're not saying they weren't, but I think that the pendulum has swung so far without consideration for unintended consequences. Um, we're heading we're heading if we don't correct if we don't course correct we are heading into a dark future of college football and i would say that there's two things that i want to really touch on and the first one is what it's going to do to these lesser teams the second one is the delicate balance of fan interest in this sport because it's so unique i want to talk about that in a second so i'm setting it up for you so you can be thinking but first, I want to talk about this thing that I don't think people consider and we talked about this in the other video about how you know it's it's no longer you know it's no longer an academic focus or a scholarship focus and a lot of scholarships are gonna go by the wayside. We said that in the context of G five teams or these lesser P five teams that might fall by the wayside, but I think the immediate hit is FCS. If we go super conference, if we go like NIL heavy, we expand the playoffs. You know, and we, we, you know, so many people complain about these FCS games. I love them because I know what they mean to FCS players. If anybody in the chat or in the comments knows anybody who ever played for played an FCS program, they've heard them talk about playing in Bryant-Denny Stadium, playing in Jordan-Hare Stadium, playing in front of the Texas football crowd. Like, that, you know, it means the world to them, but these programs are absolutely going to die first, and then a bunch of G5s too. Why don't you talk about it? When we start
2: talking about what the, let's say the dark future of college football looks like, I think it starts with realizing that fan interest is really necessarily limited to that which they have time to watch. And for FCS schools, interest just isn't that high. You know, there's some programs like North Dakota State or back in the day Appalachian State that are, are pretty popular and they do get watched. But for the vast majority of schools in FCS, uh, those schools are already being subsidized. Uh, and when I say subsidized, it, it's twofold. One, they're being subsidized on the academic end. The school is dumping in more money than, than the sport probably generates. And two, it's being subsidized by those playing games where they make between $500,000. And I think now it's approaching more like two to three million to play a major school. And that funds programs for a year or more. Um, they don't have 85 scholarships in FCS. They have a lower number, costs are lower, travel is lower, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if they aren't involved in any way in this process, if if super conferences form and they all go to nine or ten game conference schedules, that means the, the odds, the the one or two games net that you may slot in for an FCS team start to disappear. And people talk about, you know, Alabamas and the uh you know, their FCS opponent, or they talk about Georgia and their FCS opponent. Look, that's, that's kind of one thing, but really what we're talking about here, and this is maybe the transition point, SCS doesn't depend on just those schools. They also play the G5s. Sometimes they play like a G5 or a lower tier program twice, even though with bowl eligibility, you can only count one uh, under the way the rules are set. And those games are really, really important for those, uh, those athletic departments to operate but if the G5 gets separated from the super conferences where they don't get to play the super conferences anymore then those schools are going to be desperate for revenue and they're not going to want to play as many FCS games so you can get hit really on both ends for the for the super conferences the G5 games are the one or you know the once a year outlier and for the G5 games they can maybe afford an FCS but that's that's a payment game and they've got to be able to make more by hosting their game than they pay out by giving the FCS game. It's usually a revenue source, right? You, you want an extra home game. You don't want to pay someone to travel. You do it that way. But if their revenue falls, that falls. And I think maybe, maybe that segues into another point. If we're sort of dancing around this issue, talking about revenue and all that, does the revenue fall? Why does the revenue fall? Where does the revenue go? That's the heart of the issue because I think there is a spiral for revenue and fan interest that is really dangerous. And it's the thing that could cause these sorts of dominoes to start falling and cause these sorts of shifts in the college football landscape that has a lot of negative consequences.
1: Yeah. I'll I'll give you an example of this fans. Fans aren't going to tolerate fall camp holdouts. And we saw this, I think at Miami for basketball um, where we had a holdout because He wanted a a better NIL deal or something like that um, because he had a good tournament, something like that. When NIL becomes standard across the board, we're going to have holdouts for fall camp because people are reworking their deal. We're going to have people who said this or that to get somebody to transfer there under the guise of NIL and then don't give them a deal once they're locked in and they're going to hold out there. This is going to become so much about the money and I don't blame these kids because if I was 18 years old and I ha, you know, and somebody put a million dollars in front of me, like, obviously I'm going to be about the money and then I'm going to do a bunch of silly stuff with the money and I'm not going to be focused on football. So I think it's going to overall erode the sport. And that's just one example. Like fans want, again, even if it's just a wink and a nod, they want this veneer of student athlete. And that's why I've always said, and it's never going to happen, but I've always said, I wish we could take the players who really think they have a pro future and aren't interested in academics and put them in a feeder league to the NFL and they, you know, like like major league baseball where you maybe sign, if you're a superstar, you sign a big deal out of high school and you're, you might make a million dollars your first year. Um, whereas most minor league baseball players are making like 28 grand. Like you, you might be the one guy on that team that's going to move up. We can do that. And then for the fan, if you take the top 10, 15% of players out of college football to the fan, they don't care. They don't care if the average wide receiver is now running a four, seven instead of a four five, like that doesn't to them, it's all relative. Everything else everything around them adjusts and everybody gets a little less good but when they play each other on the field it doesn't matter um but i i think that the money thing is really going to turn fans off and people don't realize josh the delicate balance of the history and the attachment to a school that people have that transcends just athletic performance on the field and I
2: think what you're getting at here is really the crux of the whole problem. And it's this assumption that if you go to an NFL occasion or a pro sports of college football, that you'll necessarily retain the same sort of viewership numbers you have now um, from the major broadcasters. If you're, if you're a broadcaster that has one of the two super conferences, and I think we know the three and four letter networks we're all talking about here, uh, you know, ESPN and Fox, don't really care what happens to a lot of the other conferences, frankly, because what they want to be able to do is they want to get as much money as they can out of each broadcast. And in their world, if the other 80 schools disappear and all they got to do is broadcast and, you know, broadcast an Ohio state game and they broadcast the Georgia game, they can put their main crews on them. They can broadcast them in 4k. They'll make more money on that game because it's the big event. And that's good. It's, it's efficient. It's going to be profitable. That's a good thing for them, but I think that is a short-term outlook, and the reason I say that is ratings for college football games are driven more by the national audience than they are for the local audience. College football fans are very engaged. They like watching teams um, that aren't their own play football games, and they watch them Because they're engaged with their own team in their own season. And they want to follow the sport. But if you start disenfranchising people, I don't think people realize the impact that's going to have. You know, if you're a Georgia Tech fan and your school doesn't matter, why are you going to watch? If you're a Virginia Tech fan, if you're a Virginia fan, if you're a North Carolina fan even, there are a lot of these schools that may drop out of this discussion. And those fans right now, they're watching Alabama LSU. They're watching Ohio State-Michigan. They're a huge part of those ratings. So in this discussion of keeping up ratings or fan interest or brand loyalty, I think people just I, in media, I don't think they get it. I think they assume, well, you know what? It's not a big deal. If you were, um, you know, if you're a Cincinnati fan in Cincinnati now, they don't make a super conference and they're not really being talked about or they're not being televised even. Well, they'll just become Ohio State fans. I don't, I don't think it's that simple. I don't. If you're a Miami of Ohio fan and Miami of Ohio cuts their football program, I don't know that you keep watching football the same way you do now. I think you're going to lose a lot of interest. And so I think it has a negative aspect. And I'll, I'll give you a data point to sort of back this up a little bit. And this idea of the things we think are going to make it popular don't necessarily hold true over time. When we had our first college football playoff, there were 34 million people that watched the national championship game. There were 28 million people that watched the semi and the rose. Those numbers are substantially higher than any other playoff since. And in fact, they've generally been going down year on year. 2019, okay, so not counting, uh, not counting the pandemic, here's a weird year. But 2019, again, we went from 34 and 28 to the national championship, LSU Clemson, that was 25 million. And even the Clemson, Ohio state game was 21 LSU, Ohio, LSU, Oklahoma, 17 million. That that's a drop of about a third from where it was when the playoff first opened. And that's because when the playoff started, we all had this idea that everybody's relevant. Anything could happen. It was a playoff. It was new. It was exciting. And the ratings were good. And I think the super conferences, the ratings will be good for a couple of years. And then what happened is you get people that just get disinterested. If you're not a fan of the schools that were in those games, You stopped caring. There are a lot of fans that don't care to watch Alabama win another title. There are a hell of a lot of fans that don't care to see that. And now that they feel like it's a foregone conclusion that Clemson and Ohio State and Alabama are in the championship game, a good 30% of people are not tuning into the playoff. And I think that same phenomena will occur in the regular season. And this, this is the spiral. If that occurs in the regular season, the ratings are going to drop. And if ratings drop, then this whole structure and system that we've created because of money suddenly doesn't have as much money. And pretty quickly, things will shrink. Athletic departments can't spend what they were spending. Things get less nice. But now you've already ruined the general slate of college football. That's not going to get fixed. And so everything starts year by year to contract because you're not going to get these fans back that you've previously lost, but you've already lost money. Now you lose money. Your product gets worse. Fewer fans watch, et cetera, et cetera. And and I want to end this whole missive with this one point before I turn it back to you. Um, When you talk USC and UCLA, and I said in another, another discussion that'll probably end up in a different video if you're watching online, I don't blame USC and UCLA for leaving. But a part of that is that USC and UCLA had to act in their own interest, right? There's a $50 million gap per year coming between the Pac-12 and the Big Ten and the new TV networks, and they've got to leave. But the problem is they have to leave because they, for their survival, if they want to be a major program, they can't afford the $50 million gap. But by leaving, they may destroy the Pac-12, which may destroy all fan interest in the Pac-12, which actually could mean and probably will mean ratings for Big Ten games goes down because West Coast fans won't have any interest in the sport anymore. So USC and UCLA leave for more money themselves, but in doing so, everybody makes less money. And as a sport, the sport nets less money from this move, even though the individual schools, they may go up a little bit. Um, and this, this whole scenario is the very definition of a race to the bottom. People making moves for their own individual benefit that hurt the group and the collective. And over time, it hurts the group and collective so much that the move you did to make yourself money ends up hurting you money and hurting you in money. And then everybody ends up poorer than where they started with.
1: And Josh, this is this is interesting because what you're saying is basically short-term interest for very limited people benefit. And, and who argues with us the most on NIL and transfers? Agents, play representatives, people who can come in, bleed the situation dry, personally benefit, get out and leave a dead carcass you know, in their wake. And that's what's gonna happen with college football if everything is about an immediate money thing. The same thing with the networks. They don't understand the fan, the the delicate nature of the fan interest and what will happen, and you're right. Like in 05, Texas and USC, everybody in the country watching these two teams, everybody in the country watched that going down to that game and then that game had massive interest. You know, if you look at um, Birmingham, Alabama is the number one rated market for college football. And if you look when Ohio State plays Michigan, You'll have their respective, like, you'll have the bigger, like, Detroit, Columbus. Not necessarily Ann Arbor because it's smaller and everybody's there, not necessarily watching it on TV. Like, the third or fourth down is going to be Birmingham. Greenville, South Carolina, always in the top ten. Baton Rouge, always in the top ten. For games out of market, and that perfectly underscores what you're saying, is it's a a national sport that's going hyper-regionalized, because they're overreacting to short-term situations. And it's it's crazy to me because the people that are worried about this or complaining about this with parody going away and super conferences, they started this with the playoff. The playoff was supposed to solve the problem of Alabama LSU in 2011. It didn't solve it, and what it did, unintended consequences, is that not only the ratings that we were talking about in the playoffs, but also all the bowls that used to have super high interest, New Year's Six bowls, and then the other kind of secondary bowls, nobody cares anymore because it's all about the playoffs. So what's their answer right now, Josh? Super conferences and 16-team playoffs. And to me, that just totally, it's, it's a misunderstanding of what college football is, and you touched on it earlier, and this is maybe the last thing we'll say, I'll let you close out with this, is... Not only the delicate fan interest, but the uniqueness of the regular season is, is in jeopardy right now. And I don't think people realize that if the interest of the regular season goes away, then the interest for college football goes away.
2: Right. And, and I'm going to give you another statistic. So if you look at from 2005 all the way to 2014, every New Year's Six Bowl, that is the Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, Fiesta Bowl, Rose Bowl, including the national title. But I'm really talking about the minor bowls. You had one bowl in that entire period that did not have five million viewers. That was West Virginia Clemson, and and it had, a, sorry, it had a four and a half rating. I'm looking at ratings right now, four point five rating. The smallest viewer number for that was seven point, you know Sorry, can I just start over, Daniel, because I screwed that up. there's a really good anecdote that backs this up. So if you want to talk about bowls and you said bowl interest has gone away, if you look at every year bowl ratings dating back all the way down to 2000 new Year's six bowls, that is the Fiesta bowl, the orange bowl, the sugar bowl, the peach bowl. Uh, I guess Fiesta peach it sort of varied time to time. There was one game in that entire period that was, under $7.5 and that was the West Virginia-Clemson game in 2011. Every other game, every other New Year's Six game in that entire period had, I think, at least 9 million people. Yeah, that was the second lowest in two decades. Last year, ratings for the New Year's Six Bowls, not a single one had 9 million. The best was UGA, and I say last year, uh, I mean, like, I'm really talking about 2020 because those are the numbers we have. But 2020, the Peach Bowl had 8.7 million. The Orange Bowl had 7.5. The Fiesta Bowl, Iowa State, Oregon, only had 6.7. Cotton Bowl, Oklahoma, Florida, only 5.7 million people watched it. And you go back, all right, you say, all right, well, that's fine. That was that was 2020. That's the pandemic. All right, let's go back a couple of years, 2018. Uh, the Fiesta Bowl only had 8.4 million. That was LSU Central Florida. Florida, Michigan. 8.3 million people. The the BCS bowls have been consistently lower post-playoff in terms of ratings than before. I don't mean competitiveness. I mean ratings. And that should be your indicator for where the regular season could go. Because if all these people are tuned out and they don't care and they feel like my school doesn't matter, so why do I care? I'm not going to watch the rest of the sport. You're going to see the national ratings go down. And everything in the sport depends on that. Now, the viewpoint from a lot of people has been, well, we need to expand the playoff because then we're going to stay relevant the whole season. Look, one, that's not really true. Again, that's a short-term thing, maybe just like the first year of the playoff. Playoff numbers and bowl numbers were crazy in 2014 because everybody had this idea that someone different was going to win every year. And it went away because the reality is we discovered that you give Alabama and Ohio State a mulligan and Clemson a mulligan, and one of them is just going to win in a playoff. And you're going to see the same thing, I think, in the regular season. You're going to see these teams that are not in a super conference that can't compete in recruiting. They're going to realize that their season doesn't matter. And they're going to tune out. They're not going to watch their own team. They certainly aren't going to watch other teams that they don't care about. And when their school is finally just out of the running for any discussion for anything, the ratings are going to tank in the regular season just like they've tanked in the BCS Bowls. And with those ratings going down, all the money goes down, and this whole house of cards which, again, is just based off pure entertainment and interest. That is the only reason it generates money. That house of cards is going to fold. A lot of teams are going to fold with it. And as those teams fold and the fans don't have a team anymore, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I think the worst reality you could end up with is a college football world that's maybe two dozen teams, but because they're the only ones playing, they're two dozen teams playing for far fewer fans than they do today. And that's a really sad reality, but one that I don't think is outside
1: the realm of possibility. So this one was kind of a downer. We get it. Um, we've got one coming. That's how do we fix college football. Remember, we talked about in the beginning, it doesn't have to go this way. It does not have to. So all of the stuff that we've talked about are kind of a natural organic flow into these negatives. We've got some positives to talk about. So check that one out. Keep an eye out. It probably won't post the same time as this negative Nancy one does, but, but it's coming. Um, all right, Josh, we talked negative time to talk, maybe positive. How do we fix college football? And we've got kind of a, I don't know for those of y'all who used to watch Jeopardy back in the day, but there was a potpourri section of questions that could mean really anything. There's no real, design on what we're talking about so there's a few different areas we're going to hit on how we can fix college football not just us complaining about nil although we will touch on it um the first one it's near and dear to your heart you've been complaining about it for about a decade um it's lineman downfield josh tell us all how fixing that is going to fix college football
2: It's a simple rule change. Uh, The NFL does it right. The NFL says you can't have a lineman more than one yard downfield. The RPO exists because in college football, you can have a lineman three yards downfield. Now, the RPO exists in the NFL. I get that. But it is very different in college because a lineman being able to release three yards downfield when the ball is thrown changes the way the game is played mechanically. If you're a safety in the NFL... Your job at the snap is in part to watch how the blockers react. If the blockers do not cross the line of scrimmage and don't keep advancing, then it is a pass play, or you play it as a pass play. If the guys release and they get more than a yard downfield, you can assume it's a run because they can't throw the ball, and so you can come crash the alley. In college, you're not allowed to do that anymore because you don't know at any point if they're going to just pull the ball and throw it. And so this whole system of keys that's existed for 100 years had to be thrown out in the college game. Now, we've seen defenses get a little better the past few years because they've sort of relearned how to play without keys, but the defense is never going to be as good as it used to be. People, I don't, if you listen to it, Alabama fans or Ohio State fans for the past, like, five years, you've probably heard them complain about their safety play. And the reality is playing safety in college football is impossible. And so because of that team score really a very high clip there's if you've got a really good receiver it is virtually unstoppable points are high and this gets to my ultimate point with it i think people have this idea in their head that great, high scoring games with tons of points are really exciting cuz they sort of like watching shootouts if if you're a casual fan and you don't watch many games you don't know the teams it's kind of fun but the reality if you care about the outcome of the game it the biggest thing that matters in sports is suspense soccer is all about suspense there's been a lot of studies done on this why soccer is the globally successful sport it is and it's because fans have this budding sense of anticipation as the ball moves across the field and as it ebbs and flows and there's this constant feeling of suspense and building emotion waiting for a score to happen the same thing's true in most other sports particularly baseball is a little bit this way right like you're waiting if you're really invested in your team and you're watching a game you know that at any moment man, he could pop off that home run and it's going to change the whole game. But in college football, because scores have become cheap, a score doesn't mean much. And I think to make the sport better and more fun, you actually need less scoring. You, And in particular, you need defense to matter more because if you're watching Ohio State play, I don't know, Indiana, and Ohio State's having a bad day, if Ohio State could just score 50 like they did, uh, you know, what was it, two years ago? Yeah, 2020? that bad day and that performance by Indiana doesn't really matter. But if defense matters to where Ohio State can't just walk out there and score on anyone, then if Indiana gets really hot, man, you feel like this game could go any way, either way. And In the old days of college football, where scores are more like 20 to 30, and we say this all the time, a 20-point game is anybody's game. It's a lot less predictable, and I think that's what people actually want, even if it's not what they think they want.
1: Yeah, and you know, we've talked about this in the past. Like, the feeling that Alabama and Ohio State winning it all is going to be a foregone conclusion is because they're not having these random games in the middle of October that they drop, you know, 17 to 20 because their offense couldn't get going that day, you know, and it's almost like the only upsets are these super high scoring games that, you know, you think about Ohio State, Iowa a few years ago. Um, I think they still scored in the mid twenties and got blown out. You know, that's the kind of thing that that you know really supports your argument. In in NBA, like, gosh, I, I grew up watching the Lakers. Watching, I was a big Hornets fan back in the day. Uh, Larry Johnson and uh, Alonzo Mourning. It was harder to score because you could foul the crap out of people and defense played defense and it was just harder. So points at a premium, it made things more interesting. Steph Curry, if everybody's healthy, he's gonna win. They're gonna put up 140 points a game, and that's that. That's a wrap. So I really get where you're coming from there. The next one on our list, though, we've talked a lot about it tonight. This has been a long, like just segment of two hours of talking talking football. It's make NIL into NIL you know, we took a lot of heat three years ago when we said NIL has the potential to ruin college football. And people said we were chicken littles. And now we take an unfortunate victory lap. I hate being right about it, but we were right. And what you said in the video, and what we talked mostly about because you're an attorney is if there was some kind of collective bargaining and there was a centralized pool of money. So maybe if I do an appearance, I get 20% of that for myself, but the rest goes into a pool that's distributed. Um, I know it's socialism, whatever. Um, That way it's so hard to buy a player because you have to pay five times more than you otherwise would have for them to get the amount of money that they're asking for. It's so hard to buy a player, but the player is not exploited. They're getting money for their name, image, and likeness. Also, if we make it NIL where it's actually about their name image and likeness and not just pay to come play here then again it's it's more it's pure it's more about it's more about the sport and the player and not so much about just whoever's got the biggest coffers getting somebody to come there and and Josh I think that we've you know we've talked so many talked about so many points on NIL tonight To me, I think this is, of all the things that we're going to talk about in this video, I think this is the one that has a chance to redirect college football into the right direction. What do you think? I think
2: ultimately the most important thing has to be a discussion of how we can make things better, right? It's easy for us to sit here and complain and talk about why there are problems, and it would be really unfair if we didn't try to propose some solution that might work a little bit better nil in when we had discussions we've been having these for probably dating back all the way to five years but we had a major video three years about it um whenever we have these discussions we always have people and they're usually people uh related to the agency space or uh people that wanted to do player representation that come out and say well you know there's there's All these, all these athletes that need to be able to make money. And here's this Olympian and lots of female Olympians that couldn't make money and gymnasts and stuff. And none of them really wanted to address the realities of the sports that actually make money for all the athletic departments due to title IX, every male scholarship by law must be matched with a female scholarship. And so most of the sports are female scholarships that exist by necessity. And they all, I mean, literally all run into deficit. I think there might be one or two women's teams in any sport in the entirety of college athletics that actually turns a profit. Every other one, literally every other female team in every sport is funded by the male teams. And so you have to be cognizant of the fact that the football team makes a hundred million where your women's basketball team makes 200,000. And the realities of those two teams in sports are totally different. And what we failed to do was to create a regulatory structure for the major money-making sports where they have an entirely different set of problems because of the money they can can generate. Um, I think the clearinghouse model, the pooling money model, is the only one that I've heard that sounds like it would be successful. And you say 20% to a player, I mean, I think it could be higher than that. It could be 40%, it could be 50%, 60%. But the point is, if you want to spend you know, $5 million trying to buy a player to come to your school. Okay, he gets $2 million of it. And the other $3 million goes into this pool that goes into, I don't know if you spread it to every other player on the team or conference, or maybe it's just every other player in FBS. But however you do it, it keeps you from one-on-one buying a quarterback through quote-unquote NIL. And the moment you do that, it really sort of changes up the sport because again, this money is still flowing to players. And I I think for both of us, I want to be super clear. Not, I think it's true. We want players to be able to get more money from the system. There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to generate some money, but we need to be able to have a regulatory structure that creates it. And if, if I, you know, want to give $3 million to Bryce young, because the Heisman winning quarterback to appear on my TV commercial and that money gets where he gets a million and two million goes to all the other athlete, all the other college football players in FBS. That means all these second and third string linemen, some of which are going to have bad backgrounds. They actually get money. They actually get to survive, continue competing. Some of those guys may have been big time recruits that just happen to be injured. They're not going to ever be millionaires and they can keep going while well, Bryce Young still gets a million dollars. And Hey, this guy's going to go to the NFL, be drafted in the first round. He's going to make a lot of money on top of it. And when you pair that with a clearinghouse, and again, the clearinghouse's goal would be when you want to make a deal, you come to us, you say, here's the deal, we say, okay, we'll negotiate, you know, they sit and they just basically approve the deal that you negotiate with the players, then you can verify that they're actually for name, image, and likeness, money still goes to the athletes, it would be still a lot of money, but you start, you really, really tamp down the direct pay for play situation that we've got now. And that's important for competitiveness.
1: Yeah, we real quick, Josh, we went from athletes are basically involved in modern day slavery and can't eat and they're exploited to, hey, if this guy needs to make $8 million next year on an NIL deal to transfer immediately, that's his right. I think that we there's something in between. Like that, that I think that we can land on. But one of the things that's making the problem worse is free transfers. And I'm going to let you run with most of this, but I got one thing that I think nobody's thinking about right now. And I was, I was walking my dog, shout out to waffles. Um, Australian shepherd, he's eight months old and he's killing us cause he's got way too much energy. And I was thinking about like, um, we talk about the, the problem of NIL plus transfers because the rich are always going to get richer And we think about the immediate immediate examples of like Addison going to USC or, you know, the Louisville kid going to Alabama or, you know, basically everybody that went to Alabama this off season. But I also was thinking about this, this other scenario of like these schools that have large pools of money and they do these collectives where everybody on the team gets paid, which I think is a good thing, but if I'm the third string, whatever, and I'm, I'm not getting any playing time, but I'm making fifty k a year through this collective. In the past, not getting any playing time, I might have transferred and made Kent State a little bit better, made Oregon State a little bit better, right? Instead, they stay bad because I stay where I'm at, and I'm staying third string. I'm not getting a lot of playing time because fifty thousand dollars to me versus zero that Kent State could pay me is a lot of money, so I don't go anywhere. So I think everything we're doing with NIL Plus Free Transfers is ensuring that the best players either flow to or stay at the best programs, and it's the at 100% expense of the Tier 2 or worse programs.
2: There has to be some sort of limit on free instant transfers, and this is one of the big things we want to note. The world of... NIL plus transfers has only existed last year for two months because those rule changes happened at the start of July and then camp was in the middle of August. So you didn't have many kids that jumped. We don't really know what that impact is going to be. And I don't think people appreciate the sheer number of transfers that have occurred at major programs. LSU had 26 players, 26 transfer in and out of that school. USC basically built... I think half the offensive starters off transfers, Alabama is going to be between a third and half of their offensive starters are going to be transfers. And so it's going to, I don't think people understand even still quite yet how bad that's actually going to be. We saw what Jamison Williams did for Alabama last year, and that was an isolated case. It's going to be literally, again, that's a theme of this whole podcast when we put it out 10 times the impact that you've seen to this point. And so I think you have to do something to limit the free transfer pool. I don't really have a problem with the graduate transfer rule at all. And the reason for that is the guys that are trying to go pro, the guys that are superstars, probably aren't going to stick around for a graduate degree. So that that rule really hasn't ever done a ton. You get some movement with it, but it's not a big deal. The thing that you've got to be careful about is really it's the sophomore that Gibbs is the example, the sophomore that wants to go pro, and he transfers his junior year to the big-time school um, to make big-time money and uh, exposure so he can go pro the next year. Because that will, will, and we're already seeing it, it is going to turn two-thirds of the sport into feeders for the other third. Uh, And this whole feeder school thing, it's going to make, you know, Georgia Tech is an ACC school, right? I mean, I know they're not the greatest school, on the face of the earth, in terms of college football competitiveness, they are a major ACC school with a lot of history, and at this rate, they may never compete again. Um, and that's going to start happening to schools like Mississippi State pretty soon. Uh, we've already seen a lot of quarterback transfers all around the country, and so I I don't know what the rule is. I don't maybe if it's not a full season, maybe they have to sit out half a season, right? Maybe you got to sit out the first six games of the year. But something has to be put in place to prevent a sophomore that is a future NFL dra- first round draft pick from transferring just for the sake of having uh, more exposure or more money and doing it the year before his junior year. Maybe not even going to class his junior year playing football and leaving because it's just really, really dangerous for the sport.
1: Yeah, and I think it all comes back to some sort of collective bargaining because you can't do this in the NFL. Like You got a contract. You can't just up and leave. So everybody that wants to talk about how we're like, like you can't, you know, force people to say somewhere, well, everywhere you can, like, and, and even where I work right now, like there's places I can't go because I have a non-compete. Um. So I don't think it's that ridiculous. All right, Josh, the next two that we're going to talk about are so near and dear to my heart because there are things that we've been like, I don't want to say that we were the first to think of these, but we, we are the only ones, I think we were one of the earliest and we've been beating these drums forever. And I think they would drastically improve college football. I'm going to take one. I'll let you take the other, but obviously we can both talk about it. Um, but the number four thing to fix college football would be scheduling a, you know, you've got in my notes here, nine plus two plus one, um, I think that it can even be an eight plus two plus two, but in general, what it is, is all the power five conferences agree to play the same number of power five in conference by definition in conference games. So either eight or nine, and then see, I like eight, but I'll tell you why in a second. And then two out of conference P five opponents. What this does is it lessens the need to expand the playoffs because it gives us a lot more data on relative conference strength, which imparts a lot more knowledge about how hard your schedule was. So if you're playing, if you're, I I hate to do this, but there's only probably one and a half Baylor fans listening right now. If you're Baylor and you're playing no P5s out of conference. And then the team you play in the conference championship game, Oklahoma state plays no P five teams out of conference. How do we know how good your conference was? How good your schedule was the two best teams in your league didn't play anybody out of conference that we can gauge relative strength. And, and look, I know that you can't guarantee who's going to be good or bad in any given year, but if you struggle with a Duke, then that gives us information. If you destroy a team that everybody else kind of struggled with. Like your example last year, Arkansas absolutely murdered Texas last year. Texas lost six games, I think last year, but they were all one score games in the big 12, all but maybe one. That to me tells me a lot about Arkansas, but without that data point, what do we know? So I think that if you, whatever you do nine or two, nine or eight and then the two plus one, those two are so hugely important because it changes so much about what we know right now. Everything is circle the wagons and a lot of circular data of teams playing one another in conference. If you're in a weak conference and everybody plays one another, we don't really know anything about you. The reason I like eight, Josh, and I'll let you I'll let you finish this segment. The reason I like eight <laughs> is because if we go to plus one, if we go nine plus two plus one then the FCS game and the low G5 game suffers. And I don't want those programs to not have the opportunity to get a paycheck game to keep a program running so that they can have money to pay for scholarships for kids that need it. And I think I'm a huge advocate of FCS games because look, sorry, um, got a little cough. I'm a huge advocate for these games and everybody says, Oh, it's crap that your conference plays FCS schools. Look, If you're an elite team, what's going to happen if you play FCS versus if you play New Mexico State? Either way, you're going to be up by 40 at halftime you're going to rest your starters, right? But for these FCS programs, it's a lifeblood, vital paycheck for them. That's why I like eight plus two plus one plus two. But either way, the two is what matters in all this. I'll let you talk a little bit about scheduling.
2: I think the ultimate point here. Is that in our current environment, a lot of conferences have tried to move to this world where they're not playing uh, any P5 game out of conference. And they're doing it to avoid, frankly, it's to avoid losses and to maximize revenue. uh, And it's just not healthy for the sport. Um, You know, your example of Baylor and Oklahoma State, let me be clear, these aren't like pure hypotheticals. Baylor has been continually not playing any P5 out of conference. These are things, this is actually something that happened. Or has been happening.
1: Yeah, Oklahoma State didn't and Baylor didn't last year. Right.
2: That that is a thing that happened. It wasn't just a weird hypothetical. Minnesota the year that they were really good and um, made uh made a New York six bowl or New York six or something close to it. I can't remember. It was a few years ago. They did not play a P5 out of conference. They've done that a couple times. And and that's just not healthy. And rather than saying You know, and I think the only people advocating for for the not P5 out of conference, or at least, you know, I'm not saying fans advocating, but really administrators, is people that have the realization that they probably wouldn't win a lot of those games. But otherwise, you know, rather than saying, hey, let's just play nine games ourselves, two uh, G5s in an FCS, and then our champion automatically goes to the playoff where we're just going to blind ourselves to what happens to the playoff. Why not just face the reality of making the regular season like the playoff? You know, if you want to say, well, it's not fair because you don't have access and you don't know what would happen if a Pac-12 team played the SEC team, have them play each other. Play it during the regular season. Make that matter. Make the regular season more interesting. Make us have a better idea where the conferences are at. And yeah, sometimes you're going to get duds. You know, you're going to get, like, uh, last year, if you look, uh, last couple years, it's funny, if you look at SEC, like, out-of-conference records, uh, Vanderbilt's been playing a lot of P5 teams out-of-conference, and they get, they lose. Uh and, and yeah, there's still going to be Vanderbilt games uh, out of conference. But if if you do this and everybody has to play two, then somebody's going to play AM, Somebody's going to play LSU. Somebody's going to play Georgia. And, and you see you know, middle ground, high ground, low ground, like all of this data point, all this mixing up. People in one conference are going to see teams in another conference. They're going to actually have a reason to watch them play football. It would be so, so healthy in every shape and form for the sport. And it's a shame we haven't done it, but I, I think, um, you know, I'm hoping with the super conference move that there'll be some attempt to have these out of conference games. My fear is that they're going to go the other direction and they're only going to play people in their own conference, but that's a whole other discussion.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because big 10 fans, cause we're sec guys, big 10 fans get at us all the time. And they're like, you know, we play nine, you, your conference plays eight, but what you're saying is you want the SEC to move to nine and the ACC to move to nine and introduce more guessing when it comes to selecting the teams in the playoffs because you got to guess how good these conferences are because you don't know because they're not playing out of conference. This year, Michigan, the next two years, Michigan plays zero power five teams out of conference. And this hurts me because I have defended Michigan for a long time. Michigan and Ohio State have historically been great in modern football in scheduling out a conference power five games. Oklahoma, Texas are great about it, a lot of the SEC schools as well. It hurts me to know that Michigan's going to go 11 and 1 this year. Everybody's going to think they're great and they're going to get murdered when they play somebody in the in the playoffs or in the bowl or whatever. And I'll give you an example, Josh, you touched on SEC versus Pac 12. Auburn now has beaten two Pac-12 champions. I think Oregon won the year that Auburn beat them, either way. So Auburn beat Washington a couple years ago, then beat Oregon. Auburn both years was kind of a middle middling SEC team, beat the Pac-12 champion. When So Oregon then lost to Arizona State later that year, so they had two losses, didn't make the playoffs. And a lot of people are saying if Oregon had just not scheduled Auburn and scheduled some cupcake like SEC teams do, which ignores the fact that Auburn is an SEC team, um, then they would have made the playoffs because they'd had a clean record, 12-1. and But to your point, like, is that like – so you're saying you don't want to make the playoffs because you're good enough. You want to make the playoffs because you found some loophole to not play anybody And then make it that way and get murdered in the playoffs. But at least you made the playoffs. I hate that idea. um, And I hope we get away from it. But like you, I fear that with super conferences, we're going to get into more of having to guess on who's good and who's not good because everybody's just going to play within the conference because the conference is so huge. They're going to move to nine or ten games. And we're just going to have to assume that you're good with a couple of losses which is going to lead into a playoff expansion discussion. And that's a great segue for you to talk about our fifth point in the thing that we've been, this is a drum we've been beating for a while, Josh, and everybody loves it, but apparently nobody's considering it is the college football nerds playoff structure. I'll let you take it away.
2: The goal of a playoff should be twofold. The first goal of the playoff, should be to create a competitive playoff for teams that have a reasonable chance of winning the playoff. The second goal should be to provide some level of inclusion for teams that you don't know enough about a lot of playoff expansion theories that go out there are all about access, but they're access from this idea. Like Daniel was just talking about this idea that, you know, Oregon, well, they lost to Auburn. If they hadn't played Auburn, they would have made it. So we should have a guaranteed slot in the playoff. Um, I don't agree with that, okay? Like, if you're not good enough to beat Auburn that year, you're also not going to be good enough to run a multi-game playoff slate. The reality of college football is in a given year, there are about three to five teams that have any reasonable shot of winning a playoff. Not a one-off game, right? Because any weird things happen, you can win a one-off game. All sports are like that, though I will say college football is by far the most chalk-heavy sport of any of them. But still, one-off things happen. But if you want to do that two or three times in a row, there are only about three to five teams that can win two or three of those games in a row. And so you need to create a structure that facilitates all this in a meaningful way. And our structure that we've long been proponents from, ironically, is expansion. But it's expansion to six. And and there's a reason for that. Uh, in, In my view, the best playoff structures are six, then four, then 12, and then eight. Um, And I'll get into that in a second. But at six, you capture what is historically always been the realm of competitive schools. There have been a couple years where you could make an argument for five. 2014 was actually one of them. You could make an argument that TCU would have had a reasonable chance to win playoff games. I I know, shout out to Parker. There are people that believe TCU probably could have won the playoff. I don't agree with that because I think Ohio State was a juggernaut that year. But, I can see the argument for five or six. There's also been plenty of times where a G five team that is really, really good may not be able to make the top four because of it's just way too hard for there not to be 4 one loss or undefeated P five champions, but going to six gives them a chance to get in. What it doesn't do is you don't capture three loss teams several times in the last 10 years. You have a three loss team that would make the top eight, uh, 2018. Washington is a really good example. in in, in all of these regards, I think they were
1: um, P5 champion. They were three losses, and if you three unranked losses, and in an auto bid structure, would have made the playoffs regardless of rank, right?
2: And then so that gets to the other point of this, which is that you need to have six. They need to be just the top six, no automatic seating, right? At that point, with six teams, you can capture all five conference champions and a G5. So there's no reason to say you don't have access as a conference champion. If you are a conference champion and you've proven it through the season, you have one loss or you have no losses, you're going to be in the top six. What I don't want to do is include 2018 Washington, which if you force this scenario in an auto bed structure, even if you had went to eight teams, UCF does not get in in 2018 because Notre Dame had to get in as an undefeated and they were an independent and Washington has to be included as an automatic qualifier. And if you run the numbers, UCF gets bumped out to put Washington in. So you don't want an automatic qualifier system. And with six, you still have a lot of reason to go undefeated and have a hard schedule, to schedule hard out a conference, because if you're first or second, you get a bye. And so now there's this reason to be first or second again, which is really important for the sport. There's a damage that comes with any loss in the season, which builds suspense for the Ohio States and and Alabama's you expand access just enough to give everybody a reasonable shot to get in that has a reasonable chance to win the playoff. And you don't capture teams seven plus because those teams are just never going to be good enough to beat the top three or the top three in quality. I know there's often people talk about the upsets in the top four, but it's usually because there's one or two teams in the top four that are major underdogs that we know are just in there because they're undefeated But the only thing you need to do to fix that is maybe expand it by one or two. But even then, most of the time, you're not going to really help. This gets to one more aspect I want to talk about before I flip it back to you. And that is matchups. The biggest complaint with the playoff has been first-round blowouts. And one of the reasons we have first-round blowouts is because the difference between teams can be really, really severe in the top 10. As you expand the playoff out, if you go to an 8-team, a 12-team, etc., those first round playoff matchups get really, really tough. Um, that 2018 example, right? I don't need to see Alabama play three loss Washington in round one. Uh, it's not going to be good football. And so you if you move away from a structure that is a multiple of two, basically, so a four-team, eight-team, 16-team uh, on the far end, if you move to a buy structure, what that lets you do, because first and second, number one and number two sit out, or as I said, I would take 12. Why would I take 12 over eight? Because then you keep the first four teams, number one through number four, get a buy. So you end up with five versus 12 and six versus 11. By doing that, you're a lot more likely to have competitive first round games. Five versus 12 is historically a lot closer in quality than one and eight, two and seven, etc., etc. So that's what I would say is a playoff structure. I think a buy is actually really healthy. I think it shouldn't expand very much and I would rather it be four than eight or 12 because again, I don't think number eight or number 12 is ever going to be consistently competitive, but I do think moving to a buy structure where the first round is going to be competitive with each other. And then now you get number one playing the winner of a game. So they're going to play the better of two teams and you're, you're much more likely to have an entertaining playoff and an engaging playoff where teams have a realistic chance to win.
1: Yeah. And I think that it, Does another thing that it preserves, and you kind of touched on this, it preserves the regular season's intrigue and interest, and that's what we need to consider and that nobody's considering. When they're like, oh, go to 16 teams, nobody is considering that college football has the most unique and most exciting regular season in any sport, bar none. It's not even close. And what you don't want to do is at the expense of a regular season that involves 130 teams where, you know, yeah, UAB is probably not ever going to make the playoff. But, like, there's 130 teams playing and there's a lot of interest there. You don't want to move all of that interest to the playoffs. Imagine the NFL without fantasy football, nobody's going to care about regular season games. Nobody. Like, there's no drama there. Because I think we, we did a stat earlier, like, last year, the Eagles made the playoffs. They started the season three and six Three and six is what they started the season with. And they still made the playoffs. Nobody wants that, right? So I think that one thing that we really want to do in any playoff expansion is make sure that we don't undermine what's awesome about the regular season. And like you said, with the buy structure, you're still playing the same amount of games as a one or a two, right? The only potential is that you're a five or a six and you play three games. Um... That's the only added, you know, addition there. I also want to make sure that we don't play too many games because it's already a grueling season. And you remember when they added these conference championship games, it was kind of a, you know, segue into that. But, you know, and then the 12th regular season game, but that means everybody plays that game and they're not going to go back to 11 or 10 to accommodate the playoffs. The other thing that I like about our, um, methodology and I don't think you touched on this at all um is higher seed it's on that team's campus and I love that I don't know if you love that but that's something that I think that will really energize the playoffs in a a way that we haven't seen like right now the playoffs are kind of sterile with these it's the same feeling that you get with these these neutral site regular season games you put these games on campus and you got Alabama traveling or Wisconsin or vice versa. Like that, to me, brings the playoffs to another level. Um, and then I think the championship game may be played at a neutral site. But, but what do you think about that part?
2: I think, I think that's a fun idea. And I, I just wonder if it's actually really that viable. Uh, and this, when we were putting together this list, we were actually trying to think of things that are actually doable. Everything on this list is something that could be done. Uh, If you got the schools together in a room and said, hey, here's this proposal, we can do it. I think the NIL one is the hardest one, but regulations are needed. They're going to come, and the regulation we proposed is very reasonable from a perspective of something going to be enacted. From putting games on teams' home campus, I think from the first round, it's a fun idea. Um, But one, you have to deal with weather. I know Big Ten fans love the idea of seeing SEC teams play them in the cold up north. Uh, But the truth is the reason that those games have been played, neutral site games have been played in the south, and the reason bowl games are played in the south or on the west coast has always been because people don't want to go to a cold weather state where it's 10 degrees below zero in January. Uh, It's just not a fun trip. And I don't think there's going to be much of a push from uh, a lot of different sources to make that happen. Uh, And two, there's so much media and money tied into the bowl sites that I'm just not sure if it's a it's a viable opportunity. I think I agree with you that if you were to make it happen, it would be fun. I will say, I think from an, in a six-team standpoint, I think the first round is on home sites. I think the second round and on second and third round would not be. I think having a buy and home field advantage is too much anyway, um, but it would be fun to have the first round at, at, at a home, you know, the, the playing games, basically at home stadiums. Um,
1: I think one of the things that a lot of the twelve and sixteen team playoff people aren't thinking about is the cost as a fan to travel to to a bunch of games in the postseason. It's it's insane.
2: Yeah, a lot of those. Uh, I think they're also expe- underestimating the cost of the teams. Yeah, uh, most te- most teams lose money <laughs> traveling to bowls, and I know the playoff teams don't. They make a good amount of money. But when you start going to like sixteen team playoffs, the money revenue generated we already talking about uh, early on in, in one of our other segments, right? Ratings. Uh, we were talking about ratings for uh, non championship games and how they're not really that high, right? They're often a fifth or a tenth of what the championship game makes. And in a sixteen teams playoff, those really low round games are not going to have the same rating. And for the school that's on the the sixteen number sixteen team they may not even barely break even by going. You also are going to, the other bowls just disappear entirely. Um, So there's two things I want to note there, or two things I want to note before I turn it back to you, because normal brainstorm world for us. But one um, is I do think you have to remember the cost of expanding the playoff, and the cost is that other bowls don't exist. We talk about this a lot. UCF-Auburn in 2017 is a really fun story that gets brought up all the time. That story doesn't happen if UCF makes a playoff because they were not going to beat Georgia or Alabama or Clemson that year. Their defense was very poor. They ran into an Auburn team that had a hurt carry on Johnson, and Auburn was missing most of their secondary in that game, and they were able to narrowly win an Auburn team that could barely put up 20 points. They would have been run all over by the major teams. And again, yeah, Auburn beat Alabama. Auburn beat an Alabama team that didn't have any linebackers and was starting third-string players in that game. Alabama was a completely different team In the playoff than they were at the end of the regular season uh, Georgia would have been too It just or Georgia not would have been, was too Really compared to where they were when they played Auburn So that All those games, all those fun Storylines, Boise State, Oklahoma I think a lot of those go away and that's a shame If you expand it too far um, And then the other The other thing I want to end on Stuff that we haven't considered One would be promotion and relegation um, I said that I didn't want to talk about things that I thought were outside the realm of possibility. Promotion and relegation is a big one because if you're a football team, you want to talk about money, and this is why I'm bringing it up, a Mississippi state cannot afford to be relegated. They don't make a ton of profit. They have to really push to, they they spend a lot of money, don't get me wrong, and they invest a ton in their program, but they do it because they have to and they have to generate a lot of money to be able to spend the amount of money they have to spend to be able to operate in an SEC level. And if they were to suddenly get relegated, their money their money is necessarily going to go down. Even if it's just ticket sales and merchandise, it's going to go down and you can't just immediately shut off that revenue tap. So they would go horribly into debt. So from a practical perspective, promotion and relegation, I think it would be an absolute blast to watch, but because of the practical structures of college football and athletic department budgets and whatnot, it always irks me when it gets discussed because it's just completely impossible to implement at the college level. It can never happen. It will never happen. It's just like a hypothetical world pipe dream about a sport that doesn't exist.
1: An anecdote about that. I remember a while back the NCAA actually regulated how big media guides could be because Mississippi state couldn't afford to print media guides the same size as some, as some of the other SEC schools, so yeah, they're certainly not going to make money if they get relegated to basically G5 status and don't get to play all these other teams.
2: Right, and the G5 that gets promoted isn't going to suddenly double their revenue either. So it, it just economically, it's a catastrophe for the schools. And from a practical matter, the athletic dis- the athletic departments are all closely t- together. Scheduling it, it's it's a complete laughable non-starter from a from a powers that be making a decision perspective. And so the stuff that we try to propose are things that ideas you could throw in a room and they would actually workshop and you could actually move forward with them. There's a lot of other ones. And I would say promotion relegation is the best example of ideas that's like, yeah, it'd be fun. Maybe the sport would be more fun. But at that point, you know, the schools that exist as they exist today could never do it, would never do it. So, you know, I don't really want to get into that realm of speculation.
1: All right, y'all, this has been a lot of fun for us. Let us know in the comments what you think about NIL, about free transfer, about, you know, the scheduling, forcing two out-of-conference games in the Power Five, um, and obviously what you think about what we should do with playoff expansion, not expansion You know, Josh and I think everybody's, like a lot of times there's arguments. People say, why don't we just go back to the BCS? And Josh and I are like, okay, that'd be great. Because um, if you remember... You know everybody's watching those other games and not just the championship game but let us know in the comments what you think about all this also let us know what you think about the format if you've watched the other videos the kind of free will discussion um, and not necessarily um, previews or specific things um, and yeah we're back we're excited to be here thanks so much y'all have a great week whenever you're watching this and God bless